I haven't met you. My name's Stu and it's great that you're here with us this afternoon because we've been working through this book of 1 Peter now for 14 weeks. This is what we do at Point Church. We work through books of the Bible and here this afternoon we have our final sermon in the book of 1 Peter. Let me pray as we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that we see suffering so clearly but we need your spirit to see your glory And so give us your spirit to see what only we can see through the eyes of faith in the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Perhaps you could hear them thinking, what have you got to worry about? They're unaware of the quiet internal desperation that you feel. And it isn't a lot of comfort to you to know that there's two million other Australians feeling exactly the way that you feel. Two million other Australians suffering what you're suffering. It's what's called the anxiety epidemic. This is what social researchers, health professionals have observed within Australian society. Social researcher Hugh McKay says that we have reached this stage in Australia where the social fragmentation and the isolation that we feel has meant that so many of us feel so anxious. But what we're going to see this afternoon is that feeling anxious, being anxious, is not simply a modern Australian problem. We're going to see that within the pages of Scripture, within the ancient church, the church that existed in the first century, there were Christians there feeling anxious as well. But these Christians were feeling anxious for different reasons. Because these Christians existed in a very hostile political environment. They lived with the impending possibility of persecution, living on this fault line, if you like. You know the San Andreas fault line? Imagine living there. Well, these Christians are living on this fault line of persecution, not knowing when will the day come. When will the day come? And it did come. It came a couple of years after this book was written in around 63 AD. AD. Nero was the emperor. He brought in a wave of persecution. Some Christians lost, lost their lives, but that was nothing to the persecution that the Christian church would see over the second and third centuries of its existence. And so Australians feel anxious. Christians, as they existed in this minority, surrounded by the majority of the Roman Empire, felt anxious. But we need to recognise that when Peter speaks about anxiety, he's speaking primarily about those who are facing the very likely prospect of losing everything they have and quite possibly their lives. Peter started this letter by reminding his readers who they are. He kicked it off if you turn to 1 Peter. You see there in chapter 1, verse 1, he says that Christian people are dislocated. They're dispossessed. Uh, Mandy mentioned it before, they're they're strangers, aliens, travellers, if you like. That's the way in which Peter wants Christians to think about the way they operate in this world. And he says also that they're going to face trials, trials of various kinds there in chapter 1, but trials, trials of life, but especially the trial of persecution, suffering for being Christian. And yet, Peter writes this letter, He writes this letter because he knows that these Christians are anxious. 
They're surrounded by the military political might of the Roman Empire, and here are a handful, perhaps churches no bigger than the number of people here this afternoon. Against the might of the Roman Empire, their swords, their economy, their wealth, and they're feeling anxious. And Peter wants them not simply to feel anxious, he wants them to do something. Have a look there in chapter 5, verse 12. He says, this is why he's writing, because he wants to encourage them and to testify to them of the true grace of God and to stand fast in it or to stand firm in it. But the irony of Peter's encouragement is that he himself had failed profoundly. The older my children get, the less uh, aware they are of my strengths and the more aware they are of my weaknesses. Um, One of my children this week pointed out an inconsistency between what I said to them and what I was doing myself. Here we see that there's an inconsistency, isn't there? Peter says, look, you Christians in this pressured situation stand firm. But here is a man who couldn't do it himself. The apostle Peter had three opportunities to stand firm. And it wasn't simply the threat of a Roman soldier. He couldn't even stand firm against the threat of a young girl mocking him, suggesting that he knew Jesus. And so Peter's got a nerve to speak about standing firm. He's a failure as a Christian. But here's, here's the thing. Here is a gospel, here is a word, here is a truth, here is a reality that, that enables you to stand firm even when you've got a record of failure. How is that the case? Well, have a look there back in verse 12 because Peter gives a bit of a hint there. He says he wants them to stand firm not in themselves, not in their own strength, their own resources, their own resolve. He wants them to stand firm in the true grace, the true grace of God. The word grace is simply the word for gift, a gift that's undeserved. And here Peter wants to remind these Christians that they are Christian, that God has given them the gift of relationship, not because they deserved it or earned it, but simply because he is a loving God who loves to give gifts to his children. You see, it's on the basis of God's saving grace, Christ's enabling love and his mighty hand to save, that we are to live. And here Peter wants these Christians to sink their lives into this this foundation, this glorious foundation. But the problem is for Christians in the first century, I would suggest, and also for us, is that what we do is we turn things around the other way. And the wonder... The wonder of this gift that God has given evaporates. It disappears. The sweetness goes because we've got it backwards. Because what we say and what we think is that if we can improve, if we can just reach this standard, then God might be pleased with us. Then he might love us. But this is totally at odds with what Peter has in mind. This is totally at odds with what the Christian gospel is. No, God has given us that relationship despite what we have done 
And that is ours to hold on to. That is ours to enjoy. And from that basis, from that foundation, that is our motivation for growth and transformation. So we need to ask ourselves this, morning, this afternoon, are we standing in grace? Or has the grace of God become obscure, opaque to us? Are we cluttered up under the burden or over the burden of what we think we have to do to impress God? Do we know the grace of God this afternoon? See in your second point of your outline, there are enemies of grace, things that attack and destroy this relationship that God has given us. And Peter identifies these pressure points, these threats to standing firm. And the first one I want to touch on is there in verse 7. He says, stand firm by casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And this is a lovely verse that is very close and precious to many Christian people. It's a kind of Bible verse that's often embroidered on tea towels and curtains and, uh, you know, embroidery above fireplaces, cross-stitched or long-stitched. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This is really important, though, to notice. Firstly, I want us to notice that the Bible is sensitive to how we feel. Christianity is about truth. We believe in a person who lived who was raised from the dead. And if he wasn't raised from the dead, then we're wasting our time, the Apostle Paul says. We believe in truth. But that truth is also met with a deep experience of what it is to be a Christian, with our emotional life. Truth and emotion come together in Christian faith. And here Peter is concerned for how these Christians are feeling He knows that they're feeling anxious. He knows that they're struggling with crippling fears, deep worries. I think that's what's meant by anxiety. The word there for anxiety is uh, associated with this concept of of being torn, of being divided. Have you felt like that? Have you felt like there's been things that have come into your life, worries, concerns, fears, that what it does is it just, it tears you and pushes you apart, it divides your mind, it distracts you and it creates an instability and uncertainty which fuels our fears and when our fears are fueled, our minds lose a clarity and you know what the most devastating result of that dynamic is? It's that we lose an awareness around spiritual things. That is why in the very next verse, there in verse 8, he says, be self-controlled and alert, or literally sober-minded, I think some of the NIV translates it as, because you're either alert to spiritualities or you're in a paralysis of panic and you're unable to see the cause of what gives you such anxiety or nor the solution. Because Peter does outline here so helpfully both the cause and the solution to anxiety. You see, the real issue here is not the presence of anxiety. Everyone feels anxious to a certain extent at certain times. The real issue here is how do you deal with that? What resources does Christian faith have to offer our world that is caught in this paralysis of panic and anxiety? 
Peter doesn't deny the reality of anxiety. He doesn't say that because you're super spiritual Christians, what you need to do is you need to suppress anxiety, you need to repress it, or you need to distract yourself from it. No, he says, though there is something to do, what does he say there is to do there in verse 7? Yeah. There is something to do. It's to gather. It's to collect the disquiet of our hearts, to take which so burdens off ourselves and to literally throw it, cast it, chuck it, hurl it. But you see there in verse 7, there's a direction. It's not simply, you know, chuck it in the bin, just don't worry about it and get on with life. That's not what Peter says. He says, no, it has a direction. Uh, It's not to project your anxiety and fears onto others, which is often what we do. That's how anxiety works. We become anxious, and so we project that anxiety onto others. And you know what? Some uh, psychologists uh, say that anxiety is contagious. One person feels anxious, which creates another person feeling anxious. And before you know it, you've got this anxious dynamic You see that happening in families. You see it happening in churches. Now, there's a direction for which you are to chuck what grips you. It's there. It's onto God. Notice that there is an active nature. You see, being Christian and dealing with anxiety isn't simply a matter of hoping that God will um, somehow divinely zap you and cure anxiety miraculously. Now, Peter is saying you need to exercise faith. Psalm 43 gives us an example of this. Verse 5, the psalmist is dealing with enemies that surround him, not dissimilar to the situation that the Christians are facing here in the first century. And he says this, verse 5, he says this to himself, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. Peter gives us not only something to do, but he also gives us, uh, helps us see the cause of much of our anxiety. Because in the previous verse, there in verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Notice that this is a command. Humble yourself. And what happens when you humble yourself? Well, when you humble yourself, you realise that you're not in control. You realise that whatever you are struggling with is actually beyond you. And you know what? That can be a freaky thing, but that can be a wonderful thing. To know that what you are struggling with is beyond you, but it is not beyond God. Verse 6, no. Because he's the one with a mighty hand. He's the one who can do something. So often we act simply in frantic panic with our feeble hands because we fail to believe that he will act with his mighty hand. See how God changes everything? God changes even the way we deal with our fears because we don't deal with him alone. We deal with him with him. And our ability to deal with our fears, our anxieties, our troubles is pathetic 
compared to his ability to work in us and through us. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You see what God is saying? He's saying he cares for you. He's saying he knows your stresses and your fears. There might not be anyone else who understands actually what you're going through. But here we see that God understands. He knows and he cares. And this is something that we need to be reminded of. This is in one sense, it's simple to understand, but it's very, very hard to live. It's very easy to live when everything's okay. It's hard to live when things are upon you. Think of Mary and Martha. Mary sat at Jesus' feet. But Martha, oh no, Martha was too busy to sit at Jesus' feet. In Luke chapter 10, verse 40, we read that she, Martha, was distracted by much serving. And so Martha's preoccupation of what she needed to do for Jesus had overtaken her time spent with Jesus. And isn't so often that the case, that we feel a bitterness when we see other people and, and we're feeling anxious and we're feeling burdened and there's everything going on for us, but out there in happy wonderland for everyone else, it's fantastic. This is why resentment creeps in, because we look at other people's lives. We're too busy to sit at Jesus' feet, to have him comfort us, to hear of his love for us, to know of God's mighty hand upon us. He cares for you. And so if this afternoon you trust in the Lord Jesus and you know the joy of forgiveness, you know that there is nothing that can stop his love for you, if you know the presence of his spirit, then we need to be reminded of his care for us Actually, in the first century, in the religious traditions outside of Christianity, in pagan activity, in the Greek gods, these Greek gods, were, they were pretty well known for sleeping on the job. And so much of the religious activity in the first century was to rouse sleeping gods because they were eating and doing other things. But here, this is not the case. This is not the promise of the Bible This is not who Jesus is nor who God is. He is not asleep. When you wake in the morning, he is already up. When you toss and turn at night because you can't sleep, he never sleeps. Cast all your fears. Take them off you and put them on him. Why? Because he cares for you. One of my favourite preachers, an English preacher of the 19th century, C.H. Spurgeon, puts it so beautifully, and I know I've shared it with uh, some of you before this quote. It's such a helpful and beautiful quote. He says this, What seems to you a crushing burden is to God as small as dust. The Almighty bends his shoulders and he says, Look, put your troubles here. Will you bear yourself what God's shoulders are ready to carry? Will you bear yourself? Will you bear in anxiety and despair what God's shoulders are too ready to carry? But so what if he cares for you? I mean, that's, that's very nice. But often when you're anxious, often when fear and despair overtake, it's very hard to 
to believe that in that moment? Well, a couple of things to notice. Firstly, this is not a quick fix. There is not a promise here of instant healing from anxiety. No, there's an action. There's an action by faith and what we are to do, but there's no promise of instant healing. Secondly, I think for those of us uh, who have been burdened by clinical and chronic forms of anxiety, sometimes, uh, you know, if you're feeling anxious and then someone says, well, don't you know 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's pretty unhelpful because in that moment, you actually can't see that. But I want to say this. The whole book of 1 Peter is about waiting on the Lord, waiting for his timing, being patient in the middle of suffering because there may be times in your life where you just can't appreciate that. But it won't always be the case. There will be times when that fog will clear, when God in his graciousness will help you see. And it may be, <clears throat> it may be that for some of us, it's until the Lord returns and our bodies are raised and renewed to be like his glorious body. It may be then that we fully appreciate how much he cares for us. Thirdly, Peter says that there is a source of our fear. So he said that, you know, we face these anxieties. He's helped us see what to do with it, but he also helps us see where they come from. And really that's what we're up to in point three, because behind every spiritual reality, Peter is helping us and helping his readers to be clear-minded about their situation. You know that they were facing this political, military situation, but you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, play your political cards right, and if we get the right guy, the next great emperor, then everything's going to be okay. Now, what does Peter do as they're surrounded by the Roman Empire, by their military and political might? He says, that's not your problem. The empire is not your problem. Rome is not your problem. The emperor is not your problem. What is your problem? Verse 8. The devil. The devil's the one who's prowling around looking for someone to devour. Now, I know when Christians speak about the devil, sometimes it makes us look pretty cuckoo. Um, and some Christians are very cuckoo when it comes to thinking about the devil. They're always worried about the devil. The devil's behind the couch. He's behind here. He's going to get you at any time. Because often there's two, and this is what C.S. Lewis says in his Screwtape Letters, that there are two opposite and equal mistakes that people fall into. It's either overbelief, worried about the devil behind the couch, just near the remote control, or it's an underbelief. It's that, oh, you know, the, that's, that's all just kind of a fiction. Um, that's a mythology that was made up. They're two mistakes. To over, to give too much power to the devil or to underestimate his power. See, the problem might be if you can imagine a ship, um, perhaps Captain James Cook in his endeavour, caught on rocks outside of Cooktown, or, caught on coral outside of Cooktown. There the men go in under the ship. They wanted to plug the holes. But if the captain doesn't realise that the ship is on the coral reef, then no matter how many times you try and plug 
those holes, it won't deal with the problem. And that is exactly what Peter is saying here. He's saying the source of the problem is the evil one, is the devil. Uh, Some of you know that we have recently gained a cat and a dog. And unlike our dog, our cat waits patiently. I've seen him sneak up on the dog just like his big cousin, the lion, who stalks its prey. Why does a lion, why does a cat stalk its prey? Because it's waiting for the right time. And here Peter says the devil is like a lion. The devil is not a dog. Our dog sees something and runs straight after it. But the devil's like a lion. He's cunning. He waits before he strikes. And you know what he's waiting for? He's waiting for our weakest moment. He's prowling. He's waiting for moments of weakness and then he roars. And it's usually and often when we're in isolation because that's what lions do out in the wilderness, jungle, wherever they live. Okay? They wait for the hyena to become, you know, the little hyena, poor little hyena, uh, hyena to become separated and then they pounce, separate. And this is what the evil one does for us. He's waiting for us to be isolated to feel like we're the only one going through what we're going through. And he's trying to terrify us. He's trying to make us afraid. He's trying to fill us with anxieties. He wants us off balance. He wants us nervous. And most of all, he wants us lonely. He wants us lonely. He wants us thinking, you know what? You're the only loser Christian who struggles with anxiety. You're the only loser Christian who struggles with pride. You're the only Christian who is burdened under the weight of fear. That's what the devil wants to do. And it's the fear of the roar more than the teeth and the claws. That is the devil's scheme. He tells lies. And the only power the devil has is the power that we give him. And you know when we give him power? We give him power when we believe his lies. And verse 9 suggests to me that his aim is to destroy Christians through suffering. He wants Christians to doubt the goodness of God because there is nothing like the devil to be at work than in the middle of suffering, to doubt the presence and the power of God. That's the sound of his roar. Because you know what? This afternoon there are thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of Christians who are suffering, suffering in very similar situation to that of those Christians in the first century. And they're suffering, and many of them are suffering joyfully, joyfully enduring hardship for following Christ. Why? How can they do that? How can they do that? Well, they know it's only a matter of time because the followers of Jesus do not need the reward of this world. The followers of Jesus don't need to be treated well. Why? Because we have a future hope. We have a future hope that can't perish spoil or fade. We have a huge future hope that's been guaranteed by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. This is how Peter started his letter back in chapter 1 verse 3, this rock solid living hope. And here it works. It works in the first century. It works for those who are persecuted in our world this very day and it works for us here today. Because he says, resist this lion. There in verse 10, after you have suffered, God will bring you to his eternal glory, restore, confirm and strengthen, restore, 
confirm, strengthen and establish you. Everything good that you might lose for being a Christian, the credibility that you might have in our society which might easily evaporate for being Christian, that only makes sense. You can only risk that. You can only live that life if you're absolutely sure of your reward in heaven. The reward in heaven is the crown of glory, the presence of the Lord Jesus. Because there is one day when all wrongs will be set right, when all patience under mockery will be vindicated, or shame in this world will be taken away and will be replaced with honour, or pain will be removed, or losses restored, or brokenness mended, or humiliation exchanged for glory, or slander revealed to be false before the whole world. Peter says to Christians in the first century, he says to Christians suffering in our world, and he says to us this afternoon, he says, stand firm. The evil one will roar, but stand firm. Stand firm in the rock-solid hope of our future in heaven. Stand firm in the true grace, because you are going to struggle, and in fact, you are going to fail. But remember Peter. Peter, this one who had failed, failed three times, denied the Lord Jesus. Jesus says to him, after his death, he says, Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Peter is living proof of his promise. The Lord Jesus prayed for him. The Lord Jesus cares for us. And you know what happened to Peter? He failed. And yet because he cares for us, Peter was restored. Peter was confirmed. Peter was strengthened in his faith. Peter was established such that he could encourage these Christians as he writes this letter. If you trust in Lord Jesus, if you know the death and resurrection of Christ, there is a crown of glory waiting for you. You will be exalted at the right time. God has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. And after you have suffered, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. Amen.